0: You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. In today's role model episode, we're hearing from Reverend Dr. Deirdre Brower Latz, who is currently serving as the principal of Nazarene Theological College in Manchester, England. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Jack and I'm here with my guest, Dr. Deirdre Brower-Latz, who is currently serving as the principal of Nazarene Theological College in Manchester. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Awesome. Well, the first question I ask everyone is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene?
1: I am an, an, from the embryo Nazarene, so my parents, my grandparents, at least on one and a half sides of my family, we're all Nazarenes. And so I had absolutely no choice whatsoever, but have stuck with it when I did have a choice, yeah. Tell me about your
0: call to ministry. How did you end up wanting to be a pastor?
1: Probably for a lot of people, it's quite a similar story in some ways. I felt lots of nudges, Along the way, I had seen some quite extraordinary people leading and serving the church. I liked them very much. I was kind of one of the people brought up in a community of faith where there was a lot of forgiveness and grace and mercy shown. And so that was quite compelling. And then when I started fishing around for what I was going to do, I wanted to do history actually. I was very keen on being a historian i'd really wanted to be a vet but i didn't have mathematical skills and so history was it and then my family moved to the uk and i came with them just as i finished high school in canada wow and i came with them initially just for a little while and then ended up staying a bit longer so i did i graduated from high school in Canada and then came here and did a year of exams in the UK called A-Levels and at the end of that I didn't know what I was going to do and so my dad suggested after a prolonged period that I come to college. It's quite a complex story because I was an immigrant and so I'm influenced a lot by that. So what happened actually in that time between was that to be studying in the UK at that time on home fees you had to have been resident for three years. The only thing you could do that would be paid or would receive any sort of grant funding or loans from the government was to become a nurse. And so I'd applied for nursing, been accepted, was measured for my uniform, got the contract, came back, sat down to sign the contract and literally couldn't put pen to paper to sign the contract, Mm -hmm. was really distraught, went to my dad's office and said, I thought I was gonna be a nurse but I can't do that. He said, go to NTC for a semester while you sort it out. First day, first class in the January semester at college, sat in a room full of my peers and thought, I love theology. And then during that time, I became increasingly open, I suppose, to responding to who God wanted me to be. Initially, I wanted to be married. And so just being very honest here. (laughs) so when God was saying well Deirdre I think you could serve me in the church my brain was a bit like well maybe as a spouse but it just became clear that that wasn't really right that actually I was called to serve in my own right as a leader and I was exercising skills along the way I suppose in developing leadership through NYI and things like that but It was quite traumatic. I went to a conference, a compassionate ministry conference in Germany, and heard Tom Neese speaking. And it was one of the sermons where it felt like he was speaking right to my heart. And so it was there really that, in one very long marathon prayer session in the night, I felt like saying yes to God. I was going out with somebody at the time that I thought I was going to marry. And, um, I phoned him the next day, very excited I'd had this massive spiritual breakthrough. And there was just silence on the phone. I was in Germany, he was in Manchester. I spoke to people at the conference and said, oh, I'm called to be a pastor. And two of their responses were, oh no, that's really going to be difficult. And so that was kind of dipping my toe in. I mean, they were affirming. It wasn't, oh no, you shouldn't be. It was. Oh no, there's not really a model for that in the UK right now. We don't know what to do with you. How how will this fit? And I came back, and the the guy I was in love with said he couldn't marry a minister, and so that was quite traumatic also. And so spent about a semester in bits and pieces, mm. and then sort of stepped into it for myself. That's a very long winded answer but it's difficult because I feel like the combination of aptitude and calling and vocation and skill and ability and prayer life and community around you it, it's all a big schmuzzle. I don't know if that's a word <laughs> that people use but you know like it's this massive string and when I try and pull it one, I think, well, that's not quite fair, or this one, that's not quite fair. But anyway, I eventually applied for my licenses, had a very difficult time initially going through my licensing process, not in the local church, but at the district level. Why was that? Um, Probably it was because... It would be easy to say it was because I was a woman. I'm not sure that's entirely fair. I think it's maybe because I was a young woman and possibly because I was already thinking outside of a quite conventional box. And so I didn't have the language that would have helped me get through things easily or I wouldn't conform to the language. So I could have said the right things because I knew the Nazarene church inside out but I couldn't say the right things because I had to be true to myself and how I felt God calling me. I couldn't acknowledge or accept that I was just going to be a youth worker, for instance, which was a steer. When somebody asked me if I could be a nurse or a teacher, I couldn't do that. When somebody asked me what my understanding of entire sanctification was, I couldn't just comply with a manual rote. And so I think, there's probably a combination of things that felt like a really complicated, difficult process. And I was young. I mean, I was young. You know, I accept that probably that it, I was also rash at points. And, you know, just, yeah, it was a difficult and interesting and complicated process. Mm-hmm. And I think I had wonderful advocacy from some people, in particular my predecessor and the role I'm in now, the principal of the college at the time, was a wonderful bridge person, and he would translate things. So they would say, you know, Deirdre, what's entire sanctification? And I would say, well, loving God with everything. you know, Is it a moment? Is it a process? And I would say something. And then Dr. McGonagall would say, you know, I think you'll find that in Wesleyan history, there's precedent for what Deirdre is saying that means that she is, in fact, in line with the tradition of the Nazarene church. You know, He was a wonderful advocate like that. Mm. Yeah, and so then I was ultimately ordained and have been given opportunities to serve. I don't recognize, Brittany, a lot of what I read on Facebook about the experience of women in ministry as my own.
0: Mm.
1: In what way? Well, there was an article online recently that a lot of Nazarene people tagged me in. Obviously, tagging me, I assume, because they thought I would resonate with it, it was kind of leading into your own gifts. It was Tara Beth Leach, I think, at Pasadena First Church, so I don't remember the title, but you could look up the article. And I mean, I totally applaud what she's saying, absolutely right, you know, you lead out of who you are, but I didn't really recognize her experience of a resistance as my own more recent experience. I don't feel like I've ever done anything differently than that. So I haven't felt the squeeze to be somebody I'm not in the same way. I, I did like it. I was just, because I was tagged in it, I read it through different eyes because then I was asking myself, well, why was I tagged in this? Was I tagged in it because they thought I would agree or disagree? And so you kind of read, I read it with a slightly different filter than I might otherwise have. And What struck me was some of the issues that I faced here in the UK don't feel the same as the ones I read about in the US. And so I have a lot of American friends who have very different experiences than me. And so I've been tracking like over the summer, there was an article as well about not being able to lunch with a man or something. Uh, You know, a young woman writing about her experience of her internship, I think saying that she realized she was basically excluded from the processes of mentoring and training because nobody on the church team would eat lunch with her Mm. because she was a woman and their rule was, you know, you don't eat with somebody of the opposite sex. And I actually, I came into my colleagues here and I just said, can you imagine how dysfunctional the college would be if none of us ever spoke to one another on our own or were allowed to be, friends with each other or eat together or travel or do any of the things that make us functional and collaborative now obviously you know you don't want to be unwise but actually I mean I just I'm it's alien to me some of the conventions that people are imposing on women Particularly, I just think I couldn't, I actually don't think I could ever minister in that. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, I was kind of reading it through that lens as well, I suppose, saying, and there was a whole load of other things. And, like, I I agreed with much of it. I think I was just also a little bit like, wow, I'm I'm actually very grateful that I don't have that additional pressure, in fact, because I genuinely think that my colleagues here that we just respect one another. And I feel respected, and I feel like I can practice well my job because there are no barriers that would be created falsely Mm. through saying, oh my goodness, I can't speak to the academic dean over lunch because he's a man and I'm a woman. And obviously, he's so sexualized that he couldn't help himself if he was across the table from me or I'm so rapacious, that I couldn't help myself. I mean, that to me is so controlled by a sexualized culture that the church should be standing against. I just don't relate to it. I just think actually, if the church can't develop healthy relationships, we are in serious trouble, like serious trouble, right? Because it. It makes a mockery of being whole in Christ in some ways. Now, yeah, I'm not saying if there's somebody who's truly ill and is likely to be unsafe to have lunch with, that I then proceed willy nilly. But, you know, you have to exercise wisdom, of course you do. But I, I just, wow. And that's not what her article was about at all. But I had read that article earlier. And then read this one where she kind of, I think, was saying in her current congregation, which she loves very much, it sounds like a wonderful marriage of pastor and congregation from what I could read, that she's exercising her gifts in all their fullness and that's who she is and she's not pretending to be something she's not. And I, yes, absolutely, I agree, but I didn't recognize that I was being asked to be something I wasn't.
0: So you're at college with this call to be a pastor. Where did that take you? Where did you go first?
1: Well, I mean, I stayed at college and then I started um, serving in a local church just as a youth leader, youth worker. And then I got involved in regional leadership by election. So that was quite extraordinary because I didn't really understand the Nazarene structure very well outside of the district. I kept doing studies, so I did my BA and MA initially. Um, And then I pastored churches, firstly in Bristol, in the south of England, in a church that was quite stretching for a young pastor. I thought I was going as part of a team it was a really dire situation in terms of the community and the congregation was really dying and it was really, really challenging to the point where I ultimately kind of fell apart really. Mm. The work harder motif that I kind of had embraced just didn't work and I had just about died. <laughs> it was dreadful. And yeah, I learned an awful lot. and. Simultaneously, while I was pastoring there, I was district youth pastor in the UK, British Isles South District. So, teaching and um, helping pastors' kids. I had a real heart for people whose families moved them and the, all of the struggles of the manse life, as we would call it here. I thought so. I would write to pastors' kids and take them out on kind of dates and stuff like that. That was lovely. And then eventually I was called back to come to teach at the college part-time, well, full-time initially. And that call came with a phone call from a local church here. The pastor saying, like, we don't have any money to pay you, but if you were ever to move up to Manchester, would you join a non-stependary team at the church, which was in Longsight? And... My heart leapt. It was just so right. And so I said yes to both. Came up to Manchester. I didn't do very well teaching full time. It didn't fulfill me particularly well. And so then the church and the college came to an agreement where I was released back to the church to pastor and lead the church there and then stay teaching at the college. And then eventually the original pastor left the church and I became the team leader. And that yeah, I did that until I became principal, which was, it was wonderful. So yeah, really lovely congregation, vibrant, messy, organic, complicated, brilliant, frustrating, you know, all of the wonderful things about congregation, ordinary, extraordinary, failing terribly, growing amazingly, just, yeah, it was good, really good. And then became principal. Yeah.
0: How, what was that process like? Of becoming principal,
1: um, it was tricky, really, because I don't know how good you are with gardening metaphors. But I was becoming a bit pop bound. I'm somebody who really likes change, and I really like strategic change. I love thinking through the next thing. It makes me really good and really bad. It's a gift and a curse, kind of a thing. And in the congregation, I think I was. Probably, had I stayed, likely to become a challenging leader in perhaps a not healthy way. So I'm trying to frame it well, because how, how I feel about the congregation was just this incredibly deep love. And yet, I, I was not sure I was going to be healthy in the pastoral role. And at about the same time, the process for the appointment of a principal began. And I was asked if I would allow my name to stand. And I thought, well, maybe God was at work in that. And so I really thought hard about it. So for me, actually, the hard thinking about that role came way before I was ever asked if I would take it finally. And then we went through a process of appointment, actually. It was an interview process. And... Um, the governors asked if I would take the role and I said yes because I'd already decided I felt like that was what God was saying if I should be offered it take yes I was really helped by this preaching life by Barbara Brown Taylor mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that book but there's this little paragraph in it about the way your call and vocation shift over time and that was really liberating for me because i was actually utterly grief-stricken at the thought of leaving my congregation even though i knew i probably needed to it was really difficult and actually i think you know i'm quite open to say to people i've been doing this job since 2012 and it's been such a process of grief as well as blessing you know it's been really really difficult sometimes and yet i felt like god has brought me here i mean i keep saying tricky i don't know if that's it's been complicated i suppose to try and figure out emotionally and spiritually and in all of those ways really
0: Has NTC had a female principal before and what has your experience been like there?
1: No, they haven't. I was the first, I am the first uh, woman principal. You know, my experience here has been amazing. People are so supportive in the college. The governors are brilliant. Everybody's so lovely. I haven't felt a whiff of anti-anything really it's just been lovely outside of this world has been very interesting Mm -hmm. so I tell you what was fascinating was while you're pastoring a church as a woman the people who stay in the church that you're pastoring typically have accepted that you're a woman yeah chances are You know, some might leave and some might stay and create problems for people, I suppose. But that hadn't been my experience. Anybody in my congregations who'd really just said, look, God doesn't want women to preach, just didn't come back eventually. And so when I got into this role, I thought I just was unused to the idea that people really could not accept women at the table. Now, a parallel experience was that I was involved in the Nazarene global level in a variety of ways and at points there I felt a little bit differently so we might want to come back to that but typically I felt really welcomed, invited in, accepted, embraced and not as a woman as a token but just for who I am. However my very first experience in principalship in the wider engagement with leaders in the Christian world I was totally silenced in a room full of men. It was one of the most startling experiences I'd had in what felt like ever, (laughs) because, you know, I was in a room full of men, and let's suppose I said, oh, this pen is partly red. Silence. And then a man would say, oh, that pen is partly red, and everybody would go, oh, yeah, the pen is red, partly red, yeah, yeah. And it happened, you know, two or three times in a row. And eventually I was just like, is what is happening to me here what I think is happening to me here to a man next to me. And he said, Yeah, it is. (laughs) So it was just it was one of the most remarkable things. And that sort of made me realize that I'd been very blessed by my experiences in the UK to that point, because actually, I, I mean, I know that there are people who disagree with women in ministry, I'm not thick. And I'd been, I'd preached in congregations where a whole pew had stood up as I started to preach and walked out intentionally, you know, those things had happened, but by and large, I had been welcomed, affirmed, embraced, and my colleagues had been amazing to work with. and. You know, respectful. I suppose so. That was a whole new world that I stepped into, and that was the kind of broadly evangelical world that doesn't accept women in ministry, and that was very new. And the sad thing for me about that was that I desperately wanted mentors because this is obviously, you know, you're not your BA in theology and pastoral care, and my BA in, and my MA in Christian Holiness, and my PhD didn't do budgets and student recruitment and higher education speak and all of that. And so I knew I was was going to be on this huge learning curve. And I'd sort of gone to these meetings thinking I would try and find a couple of these older leaders, principals, that I could say, look, could you mentor me? And I just couldn't. So actually then I I went elsewhere looking for mentors and found some who have been incredibly helpful, but sadly, you know, not within that circle at all. It was really shocking. But, yeah, it's funny. I hadn't had that experience in what felt like a long time.
0: Mm. What has your experience been like as a woman in the a leader in the Church of the Nazarene in general? At the global
1: level? Sure. I think that most of the time it's been positive. So I felt like people tried to engage and be hospitable. I think it's, I think it's changed over time probably. So this will tell you a lot about me And so I'm trying to think about how to say it properly. I'm not usually very cautious. And because I like change and I like reflection and I'm quite passionate about some key issues, particularly relating to justice, I feel like it's hard for me to discern whether some of the reactions to me are because I was female or because I was a troublemaker. And so I don't want to say people were misogynistic or sexist when actually they were just reacting to my impetuous and articulate opposition to things that I thought were wrong. And so I felt like personally I've got some very good friends in the leadership of the church, and personally I felt remarkably engaged with, actually, you know, really good table conversation and really good engagement and some amazing time to pray and some very amazing opportunities alongside people. But I wasn't always very gracious and I was embroiled, I'm afraid, in a couple of really difficult situations that the Nazarene Church faced back in the day, particularly about moving headquarters, but not solely about that where I was on the wrong side of the eventual decision, if I put it that way. And so that was very painful, personally painful. I think I probably created pain for others, which was not probably good, but it's hard for me to tell whether some of the things I experienced were because I was a woman or just because I'm Deirdre, right? So, I think that's been challenging. So I feel like I've got really good relationships with many leaders who are absolutely wonderful people. I think it took me a long time, personally now, to figure out that people are incredibly complicated. I know that makes me sound really stupid, but I was very, I found it very easy, I suppose, to think right and wrong. So for example, if I just draw from history and examples in the Nazarene church, you know, in my head, And this is true also, I think, in practice, racism is always wrong. Always. There is no negotiable there. It's always wrong. And it manifests itself in a whole network of sin. And if a church is compliant and complicit in things of racism, then it's wrong. That's the macro for me. The micro is really good people can be incredibly wrong like that. Does that make sense? So somebody that you meet who seems to really love Jesus, seems to love Jesus, and has read the same Bible as me and listened to preaching in the same tradition I've listened to preaching in, is racist as an outcome. Like I've, I've really struggled with how that works. How does that work? And the grief of that and my impatience with it actually has been really hard and sometimes i've been not very patient probably and not not very gracious and not very political and maybe that's good and maybe you get more done if you understand that you can't change everything all at once i don't know i find that really really difficult and you know racism is one issue Amongst many, you know, I think about how does the church have prophetic witness? How does the church engage with issues of justice of whatever era? How does the church engage with issues of modern slavery or urbanization? Environmentally friendly issues, ethical issues, the practices that say we plant trees and we'll grow. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, all of those kinds of things. And that's been really really difficult and so how that's attached to my own personhood being and gender has also been interesting in leadership because I don't think of myself firstly as a woman leader actually I just think of myself as Deirdre so basically it's been mixed with the general church and I was damaged I think by it because I didn't know what to do with all of the emotion that my own feelings created If I'm asking the gender question at the top level of the church, by which I mean the grassroots level really, are women in ministry in churches of the Nazarene around the world? Yeah. But actually, the evidence would suggest that although the majority of members of the church are probably female, I would guess statistically, that's not mirrored in a ratio at the ordained district, field, region, global headquarter level. Is that a problem? Maybe. I mean, it's always a problem if voices are silenced, I think. So if that that were indicative of oppression, then that would be terrible. So I just listened to something by um, Gladwell. I think it's called The Lady is First. Have you heard it?
0: Mm
1: -mm. It's a podcast he's done. And he has this idea, and I'm going to mangle the theory a little bit probably, but the idea is that when a woman breaks through a threshold, it almost gives everybody permission to say, look at how good we are. Look how well we're doing at allowing women to the table. So much so that they then keep women out because it gives permission for their misogyny or sexism. And it applies across any kind of token, I suppose, that you could create a threshold for. I found that really interesting. Mm. And so he uses examples of saying, you know, look at how many sole women leaders there are, so a country. Alexa a woman into leadership and then that's great we all pat ourselves on the back and say well look Golda Mayer became leader here we're not sexist and then play out the anti-woman agenda for ever to come I just thought it was really interesting now what he kind of goes on to say I think is that that's like a generational threshold and then the next 10-20 years on that has been erased a little bit so I just thought it was really interesting, because I was thinking about who did I know when I was growing up, who were women in leadership. And I held a forum here a couple of years ago for women asking about their experience of being a young woman in leadership, and asked if they had had any of the, "Could you be a nurse?" or those kinds of questions, And none of them had. And it was wonderful. What a delight. So it has changed even in my my lifetime. And I'm not that old. So, (laughs) you know, it's kind of interesting.
0: What's your favorite part about ministry and ministering?
1: What do you enjoy the most? I think I truly love transformation. And development i'm seeing organic growth in people probably you know so people moving from one way of being including myself to something deeper more rooted more engaged more connected to god to each other to the world i love watching And engaging in preaching Um, and I love watching people who the lights go on when you're involved in something there's a there's an awful lot that I like actually so I felt like part of being in ministry as in kind of acknowledged and confirmed and affirmed ministry So let's assume that every Christian is baptized into ministering somehow or other. But that kind of set-apartness for a particular role in pastoring or leading, I think there's something about that that is so precious and taking it seriously means that you, you see change and experience that and you watch what the Holy Spirit's doing. And sometimes you see it in the moment and sometimes you see it in retrospect that God was doing something quite extraordinary, even in these very ordinary and mundane little things that you were doing in obedience. So I really like that. I mean, I love, I love seeing change, I suppose. I mean, there's lots of things I like about trying to be responsive to God Yeah, I'm quite won by the idea of being a curator, you know, that part of your role is to help find the right pieces that display the most of who God is. And then when they're in place, it tells a story, Mm. visually, emotionally, spiritually, that people connect with and it takes all of you somewhere else. I, I really like that sort of a thing. Trying to help yourself understand who you are when you're not in congregational leadership, that's been a big ask for me. Because it's very clear when you're pastoring a congregation that there are some things expected of you. And so for me, one of the big challenges actually in this role has been asking myself, well, how does an institution shape itself like the cross of Christ? How does my role here bear an ethos and a pastor's heart into a community that's not conventionally speaking church like so we're a community of faith we're confessional in how we practice but we sit alongside a local congregation and we don't in theory certainly we don't become the whole of that person's experience of the community of faith that's elsewhere and so how do you navigate that that's been really really interesting and I'm, I'm kind of constantly perplexed by the question of how do we practice the resurrection in our midst here from the meetings that we have you know faculty meetings to the way we relate to the University of Manchester to the way we're generous to the student debt issues that are there, you know, all of those kinds of things? Like, how do we be holy as a college? Mm. That's a kind of pastoral ask as well, I think. Minis- ministry, you know, what does ministry mean?
0: So, what would you say that ministry looks like for you now? And how is that different from your experience as a lead pastor?
1: Hmm. Institutions are often greater than some of their parts, the pressures that are upon them. To be particular ways to exist even the existential questions that come and they come in churches as well but i think most congregations assume that they will continue to exist until such time as it's really clear that maybe they won't financially or otherwise so as a pastor in longsight my role there was much more pastoral i suppose people facing I preached regularly, engaged in trying to help the congregation to see its mission as the community it was placed in and as the communities people lived and worked in. And so that kind of a thing. And actually, that's really not changed that much. I carried most of that on. I preach here. I still preach in Longside, actually. It's still my congregation. But here, I would say ministry is much more groping for words i want i'm going to say leadery i don't i really hate that but i think that's probably true i'm i'm in a much different position of power let me put it that way and so i'm very clear that the ministry that i'm exercising at the moment navigates in a different world with different expectations and different accountability structures actually than the one I was involved in in the congregation so I actually have much greater accountability now interestingly Hmm. um, because I have a governance structure I speak to each district I have a senior leadership team that I work with and you'd think it would be the same but actually I don't think so I think I'm not using accountability negatively it's a very good thing but in the local congregation I don't know that most people ever ask your pastor how they're doing spiritually, whereas we have that conversation now here. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure some of the hard questions are asked congregationally that we would ask here routinely of how we manage risk or how we develop our teaching team, how much we invest in creative thinking and innovation. And how we create uh, new partnerships and collaborations that are going to be generous-hearted and demonstrate God's forgiveness. Now, you'd think I should have been asking that as a pastor. And probably in the team retreats annually, I did do that. But pastoral life for me was very full on. Now, bearing in mind, I was part-time, part-time. And so, you know, maybe that was part of it was that, I maybe have more luxury of, in theory, time here. But also, we, I regularly schedule places where I'm going to ask hard questions in a different way than I did when I was pastoring a local congregation. Mm-hmm. I would take that back, actually. If I, you know, if I finish here and go back into pastoral leadership, um, I would absolutely take a lot of the things I've learned in this role okay. with me, of course, but really intentionally so, I think been interesting learning oh my word the first year I was like a rabbit in headlights or a deer in headlights you know I was so incredibly stretched by everything I was learning it was exhilarating and I realized that pastorally even though I'd been working on my PhD while I was pastoring I hadn't been stretched in a skill set in quite the same way and that was a very good thing for me you know, it wouldn't be for everybody probably, but it was certainly good for me. The other thing that I've enjoyed doing at the college is visiting the neighbors. So you know, well, you know where the college is, but the NTC here is set in like, essentially a residential community on either side of the college property are houses that are full of people. And so I just started knocking on or popping a note through and asking if I could go visit people. And That being just so lovely, one of the neighbors is a 98-year-old Iranian woman who grew up in Iraq, in Baghdad, going to a French school. She then went to an American-English-speaking school. Um, She then was in an arranged marriage to a Jewish-British man who she married and moved to Britain for and with and she speaks nine languages fluently she is absolutely wonderful to spend time with she keeps herself active by playing bridge which is a kind of a card game yeah and learning a computer she's just remarkable and so like i've gotten to know some of these most wonderful neighbors and they're almost all jewish which has been really interesting and so a lot of them are either first-generation immigrants some are the children of immigrants two are the children of holocaust um so well holocaust families i guess they're the survivors their families are not survivors and so talking to them about their experience of exclusion and embrace really has been quite amazing and politically you know we've we've talked about all kinds of things about how you welcome and i find it fascinating because you know the college here like what's what's our mission to your neighbors how does that play out and so to have this opportunity to sit and talk to a lot of our jewish neighbors has just been wonderful and then several of the neighbors locally on the other side are atheists and that's been incredible too and so They've started coming, and one of the ladies um, comes out every week. She comes and joins the college community for coffee. And at the end of last term, she asked me if it would be dreadfully bad of her to join us for some of chapel. And so she came to chapel. Isn't that lovely? That's incredible. Yeah, it's just been, it's been really lovely. I felt like that's been a joy, actually. <laughs> Nice people.
0: And maybe that's what you bring to the college is this kind of sense of parish
1: ministry. Maybe. I mean the world's our parish, but right. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, possibly. I mean I've I I came in with slightly different eyes, maybe, but also I don't mm, I don't settle easily for the status quo. And so I think maybe the, one of the gifts I possibly have is of asking hard questions. But because I really love people, and people know I love the college, so I'm not kind of an external person who's been parachuted in to ask hard questions. It, there's maybe been a different tone. Yeah, it's been a good conversation. I know It's interesting. I've often asked myself why on earth I'm principal it does seem an odd thing. I mean, obviously I, I love higher education and I love learning and I love thinking, but I probably wouldn't have put myself here if I'd have been guessing what my future would look like. And it's interesting to try and figure out. And I think that overriding question of what does it mean to lead in a holy, oh, that sounds dreadful, isn't it? A holy, I was gonna say a holy way. But like, how do you try and be God-centered? In decision-making processes um I mean that's a question we all ask and so it kind of it just keeps going with you right wherever you end up so maybe the venue is not the issue but the questions are I don't know
0: you've brought that pastoral heart to the leading of a college which is really interesting
1: yeah although my predecessors were both pastors too that's been the, the history here I see yeah the the principalship is different than being a president, so that's something that I'm always aware of when I'm I'm kind of clubbed with the presidents of the Nazarene institutions globally, but the principalship plays itself out quite differently. We don't have the same model of operating that the US and Canadian colleges typically have, I think. So the principles are much more embedded in the community and is both an administrative and an academic role here.
0: Mm.
1: So that shapes it a little bit differently at the ground. You know, so I still teach and supervise PhDs and masters and stuff like that. Like that's part of my role here. It's just a different system, I suppose. Mm. So, yeah. So changing gears a little bit please do.
0: Um, what might you say to a young pastor who is considering going for a master's or a PhD or is thinking about studying academically further? What advice would you have for them?
1: Um, I think my first piece of advice would be to think very carefully about it and recognize that Asking the why question is good. You know, why do you want to do this? For what purpose? If somebody feels like they're a learner and a lifelong learner, then that's a brilliant thing to do. You know, actually, that I think I love learning, and I think the Nazarene Church needs people who learn. And I think that's really vital for our future, actually, that we... willing to engage with hard questions in a rigorous and robust way that really matters because i think otherwise we're going to just be left behind i think at the master's level it's easy for me i think i would say look talk to people look around there's tons of different types of masters there's mdivs there's mas in all kinds of different pathways so choose carefully if you see one that really appeals to you, talk to them about what it actually means and, you know, those kinds of things. So that would be the master's thing. Uh, the British master's anyway is, the whole idea is that you're beginning to master a subject, but you're not so full of mastery that there's nowhere else to go. And so then the question of PhD or d would come up. And I guess I would say if you ever want to teach then PhDs are probably seen globally a little bit more as a pathway into teaching. You know, they're research-based quite often. Demon, if, if you're pastoring and love pastoring and, and love thinking, then from what I can see of the people who have demons, that's been a brilliant avenue for them. So go for it. Um, PhDs are different globally. So again, check out what kind will work for you. The US PhD is different than a British PhD, is different than an Australian one. And so, you know, check them out. Um, with a PhD, I would say think very carefully. So I think all along, like think carefully about this, but then for the PhD, I think, think very, very carefully about this because they're not for everybody. They're If you want to teach, Um, that's a very very narrow world in that there's not many jobs out there in humanities and theology so I I would say if you're thinking about it then try and think interdisciplinarily because I think the church needs that Uh, I have no regrets whatsoever about doing a PhD I did it while I was pastoring now that's not everybody's cup of tea some people just want to do it full time and get it over done and dusted. For me, it was a very good fit to do both because I was reflecting constantly on my practice. And so it was related to what I was doing as a pastor um, and a teacher. So yeah, investigate. In the British system, I don't know the US system as well, but in the British system, you ask a supervisor if they're willing to take you on. And so, you know, when you Google somebody in a British university or you go onto a British university website, you'll tend to see the person's name and then their field of interest. And then you might just email. So I emailed my supervisor and, or I didn't, I wrote her a letter probably and said, look, I'm really interested in John Wesley and justice and postmodernism and the emergent church. <laughs> So I'd like to do a PhD, please, kind of a thing. And I intrigued her. And so then we had a conversation and then she took me on. So, you know, that sounding out process is pretty important. But, yeah, um, it is an investment. I mean, it's hard work, hard work, and sometimes very boring because you get bored after a bit of in the PhD world anyway. Sometimes you just think, why am I doing this again? And so you always have to have in mind the bigger picture, I think. But yeah, it's good, but not for everybody. You know, I, I think, and having a good idea of your topic, but realizing that the topic you start with isn't usually what you end up with because research changes and evolves over time as well, which is really important, I think. So, mm-hmm.
0: um, if you could talk about what are your hopes and dreams for the the Church of the Nazarene. Where, Where do you see us in the next few decades? What are you praying towards?
1: I have levels of hope. So at the grassroots level, I would love for Nazarene churches to be places of renewal, hospitality, justice, deep, Deep preaching and thinking and conversation, sacred space, completely in love with the world, shaping and forming people, bringing light into dark places, planting trees, cleaning up rivers. I mean, at the local level, roots level, I would love for the church to be kind of messy communities of hope just replicated everywhere. At the level of leadership, I think I'd love for us to have really good and healthy conversations about deeply problematic issues of the day, whether that's war and conflict or race issues or gender, sexuality issues, power and abuse of power, those kinds of things. I would love for us to have really healthy conversations about those things in public, but in safe spaces, if I can put it that way. So I would love for us to be reinvigorated theologically. I'd like for us to look at our structure and ask hard questions about the structure and whether it's fit for purpose in the 21st century, the way we form and shape ourselves. I'd love for us to ask that at every level, though. And I'd love for us to have a really permission-giving culture of creativity and innovation within parameters of cross-shaped living, structurally, not just at the grassroots level. I pray I mean, I pray along those lines, maybe not intentionally enough. I'd, I'd love for us to rethink what it means to be Wesleyan holiness people. How so? Oh, how so? Well, I think the Nazarene church, sometimes we act oppositionally. And so we're this or we're that. And I'd really love for us to say, look, what does an integrated Wesleyan holiness approach take? What does holiness mean? And how do we express that? And how is it shaped by our Wesleyan tradition? I, um, I ran some meetings this year for the Anglican Church, and they introduced me to something called the Coventry Protocols, which is a way of having conversations across a room and one of the amazing things was the way they did the conversation. So you kind of all agree to your rules. So you and I agree that we won't interrupt each other. What we say won't be taken outside of the room. Uh, we'll listen with respect. We'll understand that it's our stories that we're sharing, all of this kind of a thing. So you introduced this as the rule. And then they did it in kind of a series of four evenings. And one of the evenings they focused on the Bible, and what the Bible said about a particular issue and the next evening they focused on tradition and what the tradition said and the next evening they focused on thinking and reason and what you know reason said and then in each of those evenings after they'd had the kind of Bible session they had a living breathing human tell their story in relation to that. And so that we went through, we had these series of evenings and <laughs> at each one. At the end, I said to the leader, usually it was a bishop giving the first, bit. I just said, you know what, what you guys are doing here is Wesleyan. Like you're taking the Bible and you're engaging with it with experience and you're taking tradition and engaging with it. And I just thought, wow, it would be amazing if our general assemblies were structured like this. Hmm. You know, like what does... Let's take a a big issue, I don't know, but, I mean, there's such obvious issues in there. What does poverty mean for the church? And let's think about what the Bible says. Let's listen to what somebody who's experiencing poverty says to the church about that. And then what you did was, so you had this kind of block session and the response, and then you broke into small cluster groups and you discussed it together And then you came back for a time of prayer and worship. It was beautiful. And I just thought, man, that is an amazing way of running a meeting, dealing with a really challenging topic. It was great. And I just thought, to me, that was kind of Wesleyan holiness in practice, but it was being done by the Anglicans. It was brilliant, you know. But um, I guess I just think praying into a church that's, brave and humble and courageous and transforming I would hope that the church would have dealt with a lot of the issues that I think are endemic just now 20 years from now and held held it together I'm not sure it will I would hope we'd have dealt with a lot of things including power some of the structural issues that I think we face money, missions. I mean, there's lots of stuff that are needing to be navigated. What does mission mean for a local congregation? And the more missional you are, in my experience anyway, the more messy it gets. And so what permission do you have to exercise grace and holiness in the messiness of the ordinary life of humankind? who are doing community alongside each other or being community alongside each other. I mean, I think we just haven't figured out yet how all of these things will look in our polity. I think our practice is leading us, but I'm not sure our polity is there yet. And so how does that conversation happen? Yeah. So stuff like that.
0: Knowing what you know now. (laughs) Okay. What advice might you give your younger self as a pastor?
1: I think I would ask myself or teach myself to think really carefully about the models of success I'd inherited. Mm. I think I would talk to myself about listening more and being attentive, both to people but to the ground around me, the context I was in. I think I would talk to myself about the difference between courage and stupidity and how you figure that out. (laughs) I probably talk to myself a little bit about how you show respect for your elders when you profoundly, profoundly disagree with them and by that I don't mean kind of pretending you agree but like There there have been some issues that I was involved in at the global level of the church, if I put it that way, where I just was in such profound disagreement that it sort of harmed my soul because I didn't know how to do that well. I had to wrestle a lot with whether it would be better to stay in membership and fellowship and processes or what we would call spit the dummy. And leave, you know. So, I don't know how what metaphor works for you, like taking your ball and going home or whatever, you know, where how does change work? And I I would probably want to talk to my younger self about incremental change as well as big change. I find it really hard because actually, there are some things where I feel, I, I think I said before, like some things I feel like this is such a clear issue how can other people not see this or not understand it? Or how can this still even be a conversation? How is this negotiable? It shouldn't be. And like everything in me believing that to be true, and yet I'm still in the church. And I find that really challenging for myself. Like like at what point are you a sellout and not radical enough and you've conformed and you're still at the table? Like at what point is that a loss of courage or a lack of radical engagement, do you see what I mean? So yeah. I'm involved in lots of conversations about lots of issues, so I mean right now poverty and justice issues, I mean that's always a kind of a common thread, but also things like forming congregations or things like what does the Nazarene church globally do with sexuality um, what's our starting point theologically for some of our conversations, all of those kinds of things. And one of the questions I keep asking myself is, look, Deirdre, if you feel so strongly about something, how, how long do you stay engaged? And, you know, so actually, I hope you hear what I'm saying there, like I've, I'm very engaged, obviously. And I've stayed engaged over time, even though there've been some things where I think this is really, really difficult. And I think I would say to my younger self, like find a really good group of friends a community that will support and share life with you and find people who you love and respect who think exactly the opposite from you find those people because those people will help you think through and and discover that there are complexities at work now I find that really hard because I don't want to sound like a sellout and actually like there's no doubt at all that the Nazarene church I think and I say this with a great deal of respect but the Nazarene church has gotten some things wrong in my view in history and so I would say anywhere where the Nazarene church has supported a racist regime it has been on the wrong side of what I think the gospel would want just like that's an example and yet talking to people for instance who lived in South Africa under apartheid and trying to say how did you do that why did you do that what what were you blind to or what did you see but you didn't feel you could change or how did you conform to something you believed to be not true or good or How much did it cost you when you spoke out against it? And what does that cost look like now? You know, all of those things. And I know some amazing leaders who've stuck with the church through thick and thin. And I know some amazing leaders who've had to leave. And so trying to say, how does does grace look in the middle of this really messy human structure? How does that look? And I, I'd want to talk to my younger self a lot about that, actually, because I think that might have helped. I think I'd have also, and I'll stop soon, I promise, but I'd probably also talk to myself about grief mm. um, and the fact that it seems to me like there's an awful lot of grief as you move through life for one thing or another. And being open about that has probably been more useful than not. Um yeah, stuff like that.
0: Well, that that kind of segues into the last question that I ask everybody is, um, what inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here?
1: Well, I sort of ask myself, where would I go? I love Jesus and I love the Nazarene Church in all of its flaws. And I love many, many of the people in it. And so my friends are here and my family is here. It would be heartbreaking, I think, for me, if I had to leave. Heartbreaking. Like, I can't even describe it. And I I have had to ask hard questions. And I know no doubt will continue to have to ask those questions, I think. But for the moment, does God want me elsewhere? I don't think so. I feel like I'm at the table right now having really hard, really good, really healthy, really difficult conversations with all kinds of people about really difficult issues. And I guess I could be asked to leave at some point. I don't know. You never know, do you? (laughs) But actually, I look around and I say, well, which church, given that I think you're called to practice obedience in a community of faith, which church wouldn't I be asking difficult questions in? There isn't one. And so as long as the Nazarene church is willing to say, oh, Deirdre, she's difficult child but she's my child <laughs> i i want to stay and see if i can be gracious somehow and helpful i suppose and transformative where i'm able right and so that's where i'm at and i guess most of my friends would recognize that same narrative in their life you know my my good friends we've all had those questions but then we keep being tugged back to say actually this is really in our veins this it's in our veins and so you can't easily shed what's in your veins you have to stay and try and boost it with vitamins every now and then or whatever so yeah that's pretty bad analogy but you know i mean yeah i think yeah
0: so if someone had a question for you about ministry or academia or just wanted to get in touch with you how how can they reach you
1: oh by email it's probably the easiest i am on facebook but i'm really rubbish at checking it and so every now and then i'll check it but it's dbrowerlatz at nazarene.ac.uk it's probably the best way to contact me and i do answer so yeah, and I'm really interested in hard questions, and I'm very happy to have those conversations. I really relish them. We used to do something at theological conferences, which we still have done, which is we kind of pull an all-nighter one of the evenings of the theology conferences, and a group of us who, when we started doing it, were young, <laughs> we've just aged. But we get together and we talk about all things... All things, you know, and that's been really helpful to all of us, I think. We're pretty tight friendship group still because we've taught the big fat questions of theology quite openly. So I'm really happy to have those conversations. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: Well, thanks for taking the time to come on the show.
1: No, no problem. I'm sorry I was so waffly.